Good evening. Pastor Xavier, Lieutenant Colonel retired. Oh, I didn't hear that. That's important, retired. Uh, thank you all for coming. I do have a funny accent, as you can tell, and I'll do my best to slow down to make the message as clear as I can. I do want to thank Pastor Xavier for the opportunity to be here with you tonight in order to share with you uh, information from the Middle East. Not easy, not to convey, not to understand, but it's about time that we'll know what's going on. We always tend to blame the media. They don't tell us the truth. Well, the media is a media. And how often you do your own research, how often you try to find out what is the truth, what's just deception. In most cases, people come home after a day of work, they are tired, turn on the TV, watch for 10 minutes, go to bed. And therefore, we all have opinions. And the opinions are based usually on facts that we see. And I have to say that ignorance is a big enemy. And I would say that many people in this country don't really know about the Middle East, at least not the right perspective. And as much as America tries to stay away from boots on the ground in the Middle East, well, I'm sorry, friends, sooner or later, once again, you will have boots on the grounds in the Middle East. When you watch and you see what's going on, it's quite amazing. And therefore, my plan for this evening, and I promise not to go longer than an hour and ten minutes, is to try to give you an overview about things that happen, and I'll do that in a very selfish way from the Israeli perspective. I'm an Israeli, and I believe that the American perspective should be the same. It's not always the same, but it should be the same. And therefore, we're not going to speak about who is right and who is wrong and go into ancient history. We're going to focus on what happens today. But in order to understand what happens today, we need to understand a little bit of Middle Eastern history. And therefore, that will be an overview. We'll speak about each country which is concerned. We'll speak about ISIS or ISIL. For some reason, you use the two terms. And for some reason, politicians prefer to say ISIL instead of ISIS. They call themselves IS, Islamic State. Why limit yourself with borders? You can be more general. I'm not going to speak against the Muslim faith. I'm not a theologian, and I don't know enough to speak about Islam. But I don't have to. I see what people are willing to do in behalf of their faith to butcher each other. Hundreds of thousands of people are dying as we speak because of the Muslim agenda. It's not yet a Muslim, non-Muslim war. It's a war within Islam. And therefore, we need to understand because it's not a local issue. It's a global issue. And for decades and centuries, everybody was focusing on the national aspect, totally ignoring the true nature of it. It's about religion. And when you see who wins the elections and who wins the revolutions and who is supported by the masses in the Arab countries, they have one agenda. And that agenda is the Muslim faith. If you thought, for example, what is the problem of a country called Iran with the state of Israel? They say loud and clear they are going to wipe us from the surface of this planet. What's the problem? We don't share the same border. We never had any conflicts, at least not since the days of Esther and Mordecai, and that was many years ago. What's the problem? We didn't conquer any land from the Iranians. Well, in one word, Islam. Because the Muslim world will never, ever tolerate the existence of a Jewish state in the heart of what they call Muslim sacred land. Simply impossible. It defeats the purpose of Islam. And to make it even worse, where do you read in the scriptures of the Muslim, the Quran, that the Jews are victorious, prosperous, live in peace, yes, in peace, while the Muslims experiencing terrible times. It doesn't say that in the Quran. The Quran preaches that Islam is victorious. How do you explain that to the Muslim people? We need to understand, we need to view everything from that scope 
Because too many times and for too long, everybody was sweeping the problem under the carpet. Let's talk politics. And you know why? Because politics, we can reason. We sit at the table, we shake hands, we introduce some common sense. By the way, common sense in the Middle East, not friends. Nothing in the Middle East is done by common sense. But once you bring it to the level of religion, and it is in the level of religion, it's a dead end. Because if you are negotiating in your God's behalf, he did not authorize you to make concessions. And therefore, what is the hope and what are we talking about? And let me also submit to you that if people in this country want to understand the Middle East, you have to embrace a totally different mindset, a different way of thinking, a different understanding, different principles. You tell me who in his right mind, when he has the choice, will vote willingly to a party that offers poverty, that offers suppressing women's rights and you know, children's being abused, ignorance. Why would anybody do that? But when the Arab countries had the right to vote, and they did for a while, they all voted in the Muslim Brotherhood. And that's what the Muslim Brotherhood is all about. If you vote to live by Sharia law according to our principles, it's not what we call liberties and freedoms and human rights. It's the very opposite. That's what they want. And who are we to tell them that they are wrong and we are right? And therefore, to understand the Middle East, forget everything that you know about your life, your mindset, your way of solving problems. It's a different mindset that even for me, living there for such a long time, sometimes I have a hard time to understand because it makes no sense. The word sense is the problem. It's not supposed to make sense. Sense is subjective. So let me invite you to um, an unpleasant situation, but it needs to be stated, it needs to be shared with many people as possible. Education, ignorance is an enemy. And therefore, I'm here tonight, and I hope that you'll be, I cannot say enjoy the presentation, but at least we'll learn some new things about the Middle East. I'm going to use the technology behind me and thank the friends in the booth over there. And we did not develop a certain sign system, but when I do like that, all right, and when the next one, it's going to be a challenge. I speak with my hands all the time, so that confuses them all the time. No, 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 no. no. You know, that's how the Jewish people speak with our hands. So it's going to be a little bit of a confusion. And, of course, you have a triple challenge tonight. Number one, to get used to my accent. Number two, to try to read what's on the screen. And number three, try to synchronize what I say with what you see. It's not going to work. All right? And I'm going to skip quite a lot of those because the clock is ticking. Time is limited. There's a lot of information. So please do not be discouraged. If you can't follow everything, some basic facts are easy to understand. And once you understand that, that's all you need to take away from home, from that presentation. At least, that's my prayer, that's my hope. We're going to start with the topic. All right. Number one, and the next one, please. Next one, thank you. Well, number one, it's quite amazing. When you go home tonight, open your map, please and take a pencil and mark a big X on countries that no longer exist. A country called Syria doesn't exist anymore. There's no Syria. A country called Iraq, history. There's no Iraq. A country called Libya doesn't exist. Question about Yemen. Now, that's unbelievable. Countries that we thought existed from times immemorial simply cease to exist. They're no longer there. The Middle East is changing in front of our very eyes. A new regional order. Until not that long ago, there was a clear picture. It was Israel on one side, and all the Arab countries were the enemy. That's not the case either now. We find ourselves suddenly in a new block of treaties and allies. 
Siding with Egypt and Saudi Arabia and Jordan on the same side. Amazing. And the other side is now Syria, what's left of it, and Lebanon and Qatar and Iran and Turkey. There's a whole new order in the area. And it happens as we speak and changes every day. How confusing. Your friends today will be your enemies tomorrow. And therefore, who do you trust? And how long these treaties are going to stay? And when the U.S. administration is confused, who are the good guys in Syria to assist? They are confused for a good reason. Because a good guy today will be a terrible guy tomorrow. So we need to understand that everything is changing, and that confusion is affecting the whole world. But once again, if you want to understand what was going on, we need to understand the making of the Middle East. And there's a map. Here is a map. Here is a map. This is the map of the Middle East until the aftermath of the First World War. I'm telling you that within a century or so, historians will look back at our era, nodding their heads sadly to say, politicians of the 21st century repeated the same mistakes of politicians of the 20th century. Look at the map, please. And tell me, do you see a country called Jordan, Syria, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Lebanon, Israel? They're not there. Am I suggesting, therefore, that these countries did not exist until the aftermath of WW1? It was exactly the case. Nobody spoke in national terms. There were no nations in the Middle East. Nobody had any national aspirations. The Middle East had lived from biblical days in a tribal society, clans. You don't form nations you don't know the meaning of a nation, which is not an easy thing to explain anyhow. So what happened? How was the Middle East created and by whom? I want to use the right terminology because for too long we were using the wrong one. The war, there were two sets of treaties. On one side were the Germans, allied with the Austro-Hungarians, there used to be such a thing, and the Ottoman Empire. On the other side, Britain, France, the U.S. later on, when the war was over, on the losing side was the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire represented all the Muslims in the world. And therefore, let me once again submit to you that the way to understand the results of WW1 is not that one party won a victory over the other party. The Christian world defeated the Muslim world unconditionally. Is that clear? Do you understand the difference? Once again, it's not one nation defeated another nation. The Christian faith defeated the Muslim faith. Now it's payback time. Now it's time for revenge. They do not understand. If indeed the Quran, the scriptures, is the word of Allah, how could it be? They will never accept the results, and that's the way to see that. It's not that the U.S., Britain, and France defeated the Germans. It's the Christian world defeated the Muslim world. You must understand that perspective because that's their motivation to restore the greatness of Islam. And if that is understood, the rest is details. And therefore, not only that the West slash Christians won the victory, they created an area based on Christian principles, basically. Creating states and creating nations for people that were not interested to live in states or to be called nations. If I live on one mountaintop, the clan that lives on the next mountaintop is not my friend. He's not part of my nation. He's my bitter enemy. So why would we cooperate? Well, since they've lost the war, they did not have that many choices. And who created the Middle East? 
British politicians, French politicians, based on national principles that the locals were not interested in. So how do you take those clans and force them to cooperate, to create a nation? Not easy. And therefore, there were few. Next slide, please. And the next one. We just covered all of that. I told you, not very disciplined. In other words, I think that this is clear, because this is something that we all must understand. And the next one. And the, and the whole nine. I know, I know. It will take about, all right. Middle East today, back. <laughs> the Middle East today, all the countries are there. Well, let's, let's, okay, thank you very much. So once again, why would those people cooperate together? They will cooperate under one condition. If you form a government which doesn't have the right or doesn't give the right to each clan to operate the way they want to. In other words, it cannot be a democracy. If you take those tribes and pay them together to create a nation and you give them the freedom to vote and to be elected, that's anarchy, that's what we see today. The only way that these clans could cooperate is under a dictatorship or a monarchy when you fear the regime. If you don't cooperate, you get a bullet in your head, loud and clear. And therefore, those entities were created by foreigners to try to establish nations without any education, without any ground, without understanding the concept of nation and nationality, and it had to be dictatorships. And therefore, how do you create a sense of unity? How do you create a national sentiment? One way to do that is even through sports. It sounds a little ridiculous. You have a national soccer team, a national basketball team. But the easiest way is through the army. The army was supposed to be the melting pot to recruit all those clan members together, serving one purpose. Which means the army was more powerful than the civil authorities that nobody believed in anyhow. So one after the other, the military leaders are taking the government, and now we have military dictatorships all around the Middle East. So the unrest that we see today wasn't the first time. There was a period of kind of tranquility. The next slide, please. And then one after the other, unrest in places, and the end result was that the Middle East became to be an area of dictators. Now, we all hate dictators, but let's be honest about it. It was more stable under dictatorships. It was. Today, you want to bring democracy. The end result is chaos. What do we prefer, stability or democracy? It doesn't work together. If you go for democracy, prepare for chaos, prepare for everlasting war. If you want stability, that can only accomplish in the Middle East, not by democracy, but by dictatorships. I know it sounds amazing because we don't think in such terms, but we can prove it. Half a million dead can prove it already with what happens in the region. Fasting forward, all right, all the way. Well, now the Muslim, no, back, thank you, one back. Well, here is, I'm just trying to lead you kind of step by step to understand the principle which is important. So, we created nations against our will. We try to be led by secular governments in order to imitate the Western way of life. Try to elevate our lifestyle to kind of close the gap. It wasn't working. The only thing we did not try yet, say the Muslims, is a national entity based on Muslim principles. Is that clear? So far, we tried a political solution. Created nations, secular nations, 
tried to focus on the national aspect, wasn't working. The one thing we did not try yet is to keep our national structure, to develop national sentiments, but to base that on Muslim principles, Sharia law, and not national principles. That's what we see happens right now. And therefore, whenever there is an unrest, or in some rare cases, elections, the Muslim Brotherhood, people that represent the religious agenda, are winning. Because keep in mind, if you're fighting for a nation that you don't believe in, your motivation is zero. The Arab armies performed very poorly in all the wars in the area. When you fight for your God, Allah, oh, it's a totally different story. And therefore, it's a different motivation they have now with focus on religion. And we must understand the difference because it's not the same. It makes all the difference in the world. Next one, please. And the next one. All right. More, 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 more. Thank you. The whole slide, yeah. Thank you. Another one. All right. Let's just run this whole thing through. I told you we'll have some challenges today. And another one. Another click. Another click. Another click. Stop. Okay, no more clicks. I hope that you can read it. Well, let me also suggest that we don't really understand sometimes what is it that we see. When the Arab Spring started, who invented the term, I'm not sure. But it definitely does not describe what really happens. We should call it maybe the Muslim freezing winter, not the Arab Spring. When it started, the West, all right, was thrilled. Finally, they got the message. The people are going to get rid of the dictators, fighting for the freedoms and rights, and they are going to live by Western principles. Hallelujah. Well, just a minute now. What are the rights that these people fight for? The term right can be wrong, right? It's all right when somebody fights for his rights. Well, in English, it sounds great. But if you are rebelling against the regime, a national entity, and your right is to live by Sharia law, your right is to take me out. Your right is to go to everlasting war against the infidels. Your right is to oppress women and children. Do we want people to have such rights? That's my question. That's other rights they're fighting for. So what are we so happy about? But when it started, it looked great. Finally, these oppressed poor people will get their rights. The rights that they fight for is not the rights that we want them to have, but it's not our call. It's not our decision. Some people want to live by those principles, and we have no way to understand it. Because it's so different than the way that we think. My whole purpose in life, somebody will tell you, is to destroy you. Regardless what is the price to pay. How do you confront that? Where do you begin to negotiate when that's the agenda of the other side? Another possibility is that, well, paragraph number three is basically, and that's the right answer, okay, that what we see is not the Muslim world fighting against the West. It is still a war within the Muslim world. We speak about close to half a million casualties. In Syria, Iraq, even more than that, Muslims murdering Muslims. All right? So maybe it's a war between Muslim groups, Shiites and Sunnis, over the domination. Who is going to rule the Muslim world? We are not part of it yet. If you know something about ISIS ideology, their ideology speaks about forgive me for the term, converting the Muslims 
to their version of Islam. And then they deal with the West. But so far, they do not understand why the West is attacking them. We did not attack you, they say. You know what, they're right. So far, ISIS, as horrible as it is with the beheadings, they're killing Muslims more than others. To be cynical or to be selfish, what do I care? But that's not exactly the case. So, so far we speak about Muslims fighting Muslims. Another possibility is what you see further on. Two countries, Turkey and Iran. Well, that's an opinion, my opinion. You see, the term Arab is not indicating religion. To be an Arab, it's not your religion, not your ethnicity, not your nationality. Arab is a civilization, a language, a way of life. You can be an Arab who is a national of Jordan, Egypt, Kuwait, that practices any religion on earth. You can be a Muslim Arab, a Christian Arab, the national of any Arab country. Most Muslims around the world are not Arabs. Indonesia, half of Nigeria, Malaysia, and in the Middle East, the two strongest countries, Turkey and Iran, are Muslims, but not Arabs. Farsis and Turks. One is Sunni and one is Shiite. Iran is Shiite. They are going to have a nuclear weapon. Too late to stop them. Turkey is Sunni, part of NATO. They have access, if possible, or if they need it, to nuclear weapons as well. The way it seems to work out is, it's a war between these two superpowers of the past and regional powers of present and maybe future over dominating Islam. The others are minor players. Turkey is working behind the scenes. Iran is working in front of the scenes. But they are the two dominant powers and forces behind what we see in the Middle East. Interesting. A classical war over religion of non-Arab powers. One comes from the Sunni group of Islam and one from the Shia group of Islam. Are you still with me? Everything is very simple to understand, I guess, so far. I'm telling you, it's not easy. Not easy. But once you understand the basic principles, yet the Arab armies or countries are not a monolith. And every country has its own agendas. And it affects Israel as well. Because we see what happens around us. Now, what do people expect? That the Arab world is going to get more radical and Israel be more moderate? It doesn't work like that. And therefore, we are not part of it. I'm telling you, it's hard to understand and to believe. We are an island of tranquility and prosperity in the midst of all that. But people's approach begins to say, just a minute now, we're hoping to get some peace in the region, maybe some reconciliation. No way it's going to happen. When we see what happens around us, it's bad news. Sooner or later, it's going to affect us. So far, it doesn't. But we have no illusions that once everything settles down, across our borders, we will be next. Now we see how the tension is increasing. We can stop it to some extent, but we don't. Because these countries are still protected by international law. You cannot just go and attack in Syria, although you see them building bases and accumulating weapons to use against you. Because they didn't, maybe they're just collecting arms. You're not supposed to do that. It's a catch. It's frustrating because we see what happens. We know how this is going to end over there and we cannot do anything to stop it. So speaking about frustration, definitely so.
the same sense the whole West is feeling what is the right thing to do. Let me ask you a question. Why is it our problem? I mean, why once again we are going to send our armies and lose the best of our children in foreign countries to try to solve a problem which is not really of our concern? Do you understand my question? Now let's say that we defeat ISIS. That will be easy to do. Seriously, easy to do. Then what? Are we going to create countries once again against the locals' will to repeat the same mistakes as politicians a century ago? We're going to help the Kurds to have their country, the Druze, their autonomy, the Alawites, their something. They don't want that. It looks like that's what will happen. To take ISIS out, again, from a military perspective, is easy. But then what? What are we going to do then? That's where the problem begins. Once again, we're going to get involved and force the locals to do something they're not interested in. What do you think will happen 50 years from now? The same thing that we are facing now. Let's move on, please, because the clock is ticking. And what about Egypt? And we're going to go one country after the other. But again, do that in a, as quickly as can. Just focus on some nuggets. It's a good word in English, nuggets. Uh, President Mubarak. Maybe you remember the name, the strongest ally of the USFA. Second only to Israel in the Middle East. Now, I'm going to say something, and once again, I'm not criticizing American politics, not criticizing American presidents. I refuse to make comments on American politics. It's your problem. Well, it's the world's problem, but it's your problem. In June of 2009, President Obama went to Egypt, and he addressed a group of clerics, students in the Cairo University not in the parliament, in the university. And he delivered a message. And I'm telling you, it's a legitimate policy to have. Every president has the right to do what he thinks is best. That's why he was elected. And that's the only thing I'm going to say about presidents. The message was that America and the Muslim world are not enemies. You know what? It's a good message. Now, it's not what you're saying. It's what was understood by the clerics that sat in the same auditorium. If I was the Muslim Brotherhood leader, it will tell me the following. Well, fine. If we finally are going to make the move to get rid from President Mubarak, America will not back him up. Now, I'm not saying that was his intention. I'm not saying that President Obama wanted to see the unrest in the Middle East. But I think an opinion, my opinion, all right, that history will prove that that was the trigger. Because if the U.S. is not the enemy of the Muslims, you have a clear hand, the will of the people. If you're the majority, go ahead. We'll support you. It's amazing, but even today, there was a new regime in Egypt that wasn't elected by democratic means, but it's stable. The U.S. officially is not recognizing that regime because it wasn't elected democratically. That's the official position of America today. So Mubarak, that was accused for corruption and treason and all kind of stuff, was officially released. All charges were dropped. He's, as clear as snow, he's a free man. But Mubarak was indeed a very strong ally. And who took over? The Muslim Brotherhood. I do want to run this through, please, the whole slide. Once again, thank you, the whole thing, the whole thing. Uh, thank you. Look at the uh, map for just a minute. Sinai Peninsula. On one side, Israel, other side, Egypt. 
I mentioned that very briefly. Sinai is a buffer zone. An area between the Egyptian territory, Israeli, but it's under Egyptian control. Egypt doesn't pay much attention to Sinai. So who takes control over the place? Al-Qaeda, Muslim Brotherhood. You name the name, it's not important. There are bases in Sinai, but as long as these were threatening Israel, the Egyptians simply couldn't care. Oh, now it's a problem. It's a threat to Egypt. So suddenly we find ourselves, the Egyptians and Israel, fighting together for the same cause. And we said, listen, let us help. We know where these bases are. Every now and then somebody launches a rocket that falls in Israel's territory. I'm not thinking about the Palestinians from Gaza. I'm speaking about sovereign Egyptian territory. And they say, well, we don't have the manpower, the forces. So what? let us help. It's a common interest. No, you can't. They will never allow Israel, you know what, for good reasons, to violate the sovereignty of Egyptian territory. So they suffer terrible casualties, but not to work together with Israel. So Sinai, the Sinai Peninsula, is a major problem. Stay tuned, because what terror needs is a country which is protected by international law with a weak central government that doesn't control the territory. It gives them enough room to create a state within a state. That's the situation right now on our borders. In Egypt, in Lebanon, in Syria, and in Jordan. Those regimes are not strong enough to control the territory. Open invitation to every terror group to build bases, and they come by the hundreds of thousands. Now, once again, we see them coming. We see what they are building. You can see that right across the fences. And we are limited in what can we do to stop them. Because once something will happen, they will be much better prepared than they are today. But we are forced to wait. Once again, how frustrating. What would this country do if somebody would fire a rocket from Tijuana into San Diego? Some things that you can do, we cannot. It's a very same situation. Next, please. And the next one. We just covered all of that as well. I'm not very disciplined, as you can tell. As we said, that's what terror needs. Afghanistan, Somalia, Egypt, Lebanon, countries, clear borders, protected by international law, a weak central government. The more you see that, the more terror is thriving. And it thrives in a certain geographical area. And you think that so far away from home, across the ocean, make no mistakes, they visited your country once again, right? 9-11? They won't stop. It's on their agenda. And they don't hide their intention. We pretend that we are deaf and we are blind. Because once you understand their intention, you have to respond. Which means violence once again, we are sick and tired. So we pretend that, eh, it will work okay. No, it's not going to work okay. We know very clearly where this is leading to. And I'm sorry for this optimism, but we've been there before. They tell you loud and clear. First, Europe and then cross the Atlantic. Listen to every spokesman. Next. NX. The Mursi regime was not a great successor to speak, and now there was a new president over there, Abed Fatah Sisi, a general, a military personnel. And when he was elected, well, before he was elected president, when they ran for presidency, the army, the Egyptian army is very powerful, decided to outlaw the Muslim Brotherhood, they did not run in the elections. 75% of the Egyptians were not permitted to vote. Is that clear? Because when they had elections, the one time only, 
the Muslim Brotherhood and the Salafis came out surprisingly strong. 75% of the members in the house. So the Egyptians voted minus 75% of the people. So the U.S. says, well, it's not democracy. We cannot support the regime. We say, we don't care what kind of government you want. We want to deal, to deal with somebody that can deliver. So from our selfish perspective, it's a great regime. We share the same principles. We fight together a common enemy. The question is, how stable is the regime in Egypt? Not very stable. So from the Israeli point of view, quite concerning, because we are peace with Egypt. We signed a peace accord in 1979, and we are watching very carefully what happens. Sinai is a future war zone, is already. The Egyptian army cannot take them out. Sooner or later, we'll have to move in. Or even worse, you'll have to move in. Next. All right, we go to the next one. Then we'll speak about Jordan. Another player which is really intriguing. Because Jordan is another friend of Israel. We have people of the Jordanians. It's a monarchy. Interesting, the monarchies are holding on better than the non-monarchies. Because the way they see that is the king is Allah's chosen. Not easy to rebel against Allah's chosen. So Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and Morocco, the three Arab monarchies, are holding on relatively well when all the other are in chaos. So Jordan is on the eastern side of Israel. Look at the map. From the right-hand side, it's Iran, Iraq, Jordan. Since Iraq no longer functions as a state, and most people are Shiites anyhow in Iraq, and so in Iran, the only buffer, if you wish, that stops Iran from getting to Israel's borders right now is Jordan. If Jordan collapses, it's one of two scenarios that Israel will have to respond with boots on the ground, but so does America. And the king of Jordan is criticized all the time, telling, listen, are you going to protect the state of Israel? You are the shield of the Israelis. Next one, please. Thank you. You are the last resort of the Israelis, and therefore, give us permission. It's an Israeli tank. I couldn't find an Iranian tank, all right? Which is a good thing. <laughs> but you need to understand the problem. If Jordan collapses, we will not wait until Iranian troops will march through southern Iraq to find them 20 miles from Jerusalem. So we are supporting the king of Jordan. And he's criticized by the others. Are you going to rule on the bayonets of the Jewish state? And so is the U.S. Our main concern in the region, not Egypt, but Jordan. And Jordan, like any other country, the king in the Middle East, the king is coming from a group of people that only represent 30% of the population. 70% of the Jordanians are not from the king's tribal clan. They're Palestinians, basically. And they would like to see the king out, if possible. So stability in Jordan is also critical. Let's have a word about Syria. Syria, once again, the map is very important. Syria has a very important location. Once again, a buffer between Israel, Iran, Iraq. But Syria has a much bigger problem than all the others, and that's the demographics in Syria. The ethnic problem is bigger in Syria than any other place, because Syria is divided to so many groups and subgroups. And what we see in Syria, the civil war today, that's what you see basically. Every group fighting for itself, and once the central authority is no longer in control, it invites every militia in the world to send representatives to try to get more power, more control. You need to understand that once a regime collapses, the army 
dismantles who is watching over the arsenals, including those of chemical weapons. How do you think ISIS became so strong? They simply seized the army arsenals of the Iraqis who fled and the Syrians. And suddenly a group of rebels is equipped with the equipment of a modern army. Amazing. And therefore in Syria, it's even worse than the other places. The regime is Alawite, kind of form of Shiite Muslims. Bashar al-Assad, his father Hafez al-Assad, any other individual under those circumstances will get on a plane, will leave the country, and will go to, I don't know, Qatar. We'll host him, no doubt, very nicely. That's what happened to the president of Tunisia, the president of Yemen. They simply fled. He cannot do that. Because if he does leave the country, the people that he represents, that rule the others with an iron fist, will be butchered to the last one. We speak about 2.5 million people. April of 1982, there was no CNN yet, there were no cell phones, and nobody knew what was going on. In the city of Hama in Syria, his father, Hafez al-Assad, butchered 20,000 Muslim Brotherhood. Their sons and daughters today are seeking revenge. That's what we see happens in Syria. So we have the Kurds, and we have the Alawites, and we have the Druze, and we have the Sunnis, we have all the others, and each one wants to have some kind of an autonomy. Plus, the whole Muslim world is kind of being drawn in to get more control. Do you understand what a great advantage will give a group like ISIS? To have a state in their hands, it's that close to happen. It may happen. So Syria should be another major problem. And just to believe that in 2007, Israel officially agreed to pull out from the Golan Heights, some of you know what I'm talking about, and give it to Syria. The Golan Heights is a small strip of land, but that's what protects Galilee and the Sea of Galilee. In our nightmares, we see that we had done the mistake, we pulled out, and then this happens. Another interesting question, since Syria no longer exists, who has the right to the Golan Heights should Israel decide to withdraw? That's a good question, right? Who in Syria is the legitimate regime? It's a good question, by the way, because right now nobody even considers to move up from the Golan Heights. Even if you want to, who will get it in return? But that's a different story. We don't, we're not going there. So, as you can see, a lot of problems all around the area, and therefore we need to move a little further and to try to bring at least that section to conclusion. Well, that's the map of Syria right now. How this is going to end, this is really hard to tell. But most likely, we're going to see a lot of new entities that will be born, and they will not be at peace with each other, because peace in the Middle East, you know, hardly ever happens. And it's going to be quite chaos as it is. But, as we said, the main power in the region is also watching carefully, and I do want to bring to your attention the Turks. Erdogan, for some reason call him Erdogan Erdogan, that's the right pronunciation, is the president now, was prime minister for two terms, changed the constitution to be elected president, as Putin did in Russia, by the way, and changed the constitution once again. Because by the constitution of Turkey from 1923, the army had the upper hand, which means that whenever the army commanders saw that the civil authorities are coming closer to the Muslim way of life, they were supposed to intervene and to make sure that Turkey stays a secular Muslim country. That was the lesson from the defeat 
of WW1. Erdogan changed the constitution. So now the army no longer has the upper hand. And this gentleman is Muslim Brotherhood. He says it loud and clear. A member of NATO. I'll say it once again. The Turks are a powerful member of NATO. They have access to all the weapons that NATO has, but they refuse to cooperate with NATO. In the Iraqi war, when the U.S. asked Turkey to use the air bases, they said no. Now they asked to use it against ISIS. Turkey said no. Because they have an agenda. Until five years ago, Turkey wanted to be part of the EU. That was their aspiration, to be part of the European Union. will give them lots of benefits. And about five years ago, Europe said loud and clear, no, we'll never have you as part of the Union. You know how humiliating that is? The second time in a century, the Ottomans slash Turks are humiliated by the Christian continent. And therefore, the only option he has in order to restore the greatness of Turkey is to look east, which means into Iraq, into Syria, fight in order to restore the greatness of the Ottoman Empire. Some people call him Sultan already, and he never declines, by the way. It's a good title to have. By the way, I am for the Ottoman Empire. I'm all for it. Let him deal with the problems over there, and then we'll see what will happen. I'm just being cynical and kind of kidding. But Turkey... On one side, Iran on the other side, they are the main story. These are the two powers that work behind, in front of the scenes. The others are just kind of petty wars in the area. The others bear the consequences, the others spill the blood. But the two powers behind what happens, not even Egypt, is Iran on one side and Turkey on the other side. All right, what about ISIS? Anybody heard the name ISIS a year ago? Amazing how suddenly it's all about ISIS. Who are these guys? Well, once again, regardless how do you call yourself, regardless what part of the world you're coming from, the Muslim agenda is one. And it's true, not all the Muslims in the world have the same agenda. Most of them, simple people, honest people, just want to live their lives. But what the media called jihadists or militants, I'm making about 30 to 40% of the Muslim world. That's twice as much as America's population, for goodness sake. And we see what happens. Everywhere in the world, where there was violence involved over the last few decades, it's always Muslim. Simple to check, simple to prove. In the Middle East, even worse. There are two schools of thought, so to speak. Al-Qaeda, for example, is in the opinion that we should take the war to the very heart of the enemy, which means Israel and the Western countries. ISIS that separated only two years ago from Al-Qaeda officially says, no, 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 we need to start at home. We need to change all the Muslims around the world to follow one school of thought, Islam, as it was taught by the Prophet, they say, in the 7th century. Let's forget about the modern world. We are going to go back to the principles of the 7th century. A traitor should be beheaded. A thief should be, hand should be cut off. That's Sharia law. That's people that live by Sharia law. That's how they live. And therefore, ISIS' aspiration is to found a caliphate. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the caliph officially, is the head of Muslim state, which makes them very vulnerable. Because they try to found a state. They have state authorities issuing passports, controlling certain territory. And the people that they controlled are not extremely happy, but they cooperate. 
Because the option is, if you live in war between those gangs, you're not protected. You don't know who is going to knock on your door one morning and just kill your family. So if you need to choose between danger all the time, or to live under ISIS and obey Sharia law that guarantees our lives, even oppressed life, but at least we live, we'll take it. The alternative is much worse. So these guys have popularity in those areas. Wherever the Iraqi army pulled out and the Syrian army, ISIS moved in. And who are these ISIS? Iraqis and Syrians and many others. And amazingly, thousands from European countries from America. And these guys are coming back home. They're not staying there. What happened in Paris a few weeks ago and Brussels, these are young Muslims from Europe and the U.S. that went to join the war came back home, totally brainwashed, if they were not brainwashed before, to carry the revolution to every corner of the world. So make a decision, please. Some of the Muslim militants want to go right now to the heart of the Western world and hurt us right in the very middle. The other parties know, first, we need to unify the Muslim world. We need to have a country, a state. Together, we are strong enough to do that. And God forbid if Turkey has the same view, letting ISIS maybe do something to take over from ISIS a united Muslim country, that will be almost like doomsday. But it's a possibility. So when they say, we do not understand why the West is attacking us, they have a point. So we did not declare war on the West yet. So how come you're attacking us? What is your problem? What happens here? And we speak in behalf of humanity and human lives and innocent people getting killed. For them, that's daily life. They do not understand why we are getting involved in order to save innocent people. There is no such term in the other mindset. We must understand it. I made a comment once and wasn't well received. I'll make it again today. See, I'm not from this country, so I don't want to be politically correct. Islam does not have to proclaim war on anybody. Islam is at war with everybody ever since the faithful born. Is that clear? That's what the Quran teaches. And yes, not everybody is very militant. That's what the Quran teaches. Next, please. Looking at the clock, I'm not even sure what time I started, so if you, let me go for another 10, 15 minutes, all right? And uh, if not, you can see that most of your eyes are open. Not all of them, but most of them are still open. <laughs> all right, so let's just carry on. All right, please, let's just move to the next one, the third one. Alright, I do want to say a few words about the Israeli-Palestinian issue because it's definitely part of the greater issue as well. So, okay, please read the slide and I will be quiet for two minutes or maybe two seconds and tell me what would you do. That's a given situation, by the way. Alright? I'm not talking about how did we get there and whose fault is it. That is a given situation. What would you do if there was an entity next to your borders that one morning opens fire in order to kill as many of your civilians, you're much stronger, but you hesitate to take them out. I mean, what would you do? That's a classical dilemma. Now, your answer will be, go and take them out. Simple, huh? Well, not that simple. But speaking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in light of what we shared so far, it's interesting, because the Arab Spring started not in Tunisia in 2011, but in 2006 
in Gaza and the West Bank. The first time that Arabs were voting for the government, free elections, only time it happened in the Arab countries, was in 2006. History will prove that was the spark. And back then it was supposed to be a good thing. People that are in conflict with Israel, but know the nation of Israel, understand democracy, being benefited by our democracy simply by living with us every now and then, decided to try to live a democratic way of life. And they voted. And guess who won the elections when the Palestinians had elections? The moderate ones, the PLO, moderate. No, Hamas won. And Hamas are the militants. I'm going back to my first question. Why would anybody in his right mind will vote for power and read the charter of Hamas, easy to find Google, Hamas charter, 1988, November, Everything they offer is oppression, ignorance, fanaticism, poverty. Why would anybody vote for a group like this to be your leaders and to promise everlasting conflict? Well, how about if I tell you that my ultimate goal in life, not mine, but that's what some of them think, is to destroy you. And I will do that no matter what is the price. How do you negotiate when you understand the mindset of the other side? Only a few words about, ah, we ran to the, well, okay, so you read it already. Uh, we need to understand that because we make a big issue out of ISIS cutting off heads of people and the Japanese reporters understand, right, um, a day ago. What's the difference between putting a bullet in the head to somebody in the streets of Gaza, as they did quite often? How come that's not shocking the world? How come the EU decided that Hamas is no longer on the list of terror groups? They did. What's the difference? And keep in mind, you hear the story from the Israeli side. I'm sorry, but we need to run a lot of things through here and just to speak about the very important step that Israel was taking in 2005. Thank you. How many times you heard recently the slogan, Free Gaza? You'll say every now and then, right? Free Gaza. Question should be, Free Gaza from whom? Answer is Israel. Let me surprise you. Since September 1st, 2005, Israel is not in Gaza. I'll say it once again. For 10 years now, not a single Israeli lives in the Gaza area. I'll say it for the third time. Since September 1st, 2005, Israel is out of Gaza. So when you hear the slogan, free Gaza, free Gaza from whom? Speaking about deception, speaking about ignorance, we are no longer there. You see, there was a plan called the disengagement. Ariel Sharon was prime minister, a very hardliner. And the world was still in the opinion, only 10 years ago, that if Israel will give the Palestinians just a little more, that will appease them and heavenly peace will prevail on earth. And we said, really? Let's put it to a test. Well, I'm simplifying things. It's more complicated. But he pulled out from Gaza unilaterally, not for negotiations, we just left Gaza, locked the door 10 years ago for peace. What did we get in return? Tens of thousands of rockets. So if anybody had to prove, all right, who means business, if there was such a need, well, that actually nails it, so to speak. But the next time you hear, free Gaza, we are not long in Gaza. It is true that we control the land borders almost from all around. 
But Gaza has a border with Egypt. How come the Egyptians, their brothers and sisters, don't open the gates into Egypt to sustain the Palestinians? They wouldn't do that. They want us to do that. So you tell me, some of my taxes, and I pay taxes every now and then, are going to pay for electricity that we are supplying to Gaza so they can use that in the workshops to manufacture rockets to fire at me. Makes any sense? We sustain Gaza with food, with gasoline, with pharmaceuticals. During the conflict as well, there was no example in world history that two people were at war and one party supplied the enemy during combat with whatever the civilians need. No such example. But we do it. Because not everybody in Gaza is a bad guy, so to speak. But once you send the food in, who takes control over it? The common person that needs food? No, the regime. So once again, frustrating. Now the UN is working a plan. Interesting. They want, we, they want us to send cement into Gaza. And the cement, of course, is used to build bunkers. And we said, well, just a minute now, we're not going to do that. So listen, we're going to have a chip on every bag of cement. And with GPS, we're going to follow every bag of cement to see where it ends up. <laughs> what about the bag of rice? What about, it's, it's absolutely crazy. How do you do the right thing here? How do you distinguish between those militants and just the population? But if the population voted for them anyhow, aren't they part of the problem? I'm asking questions, it's not easy to answer. So we pulled out from Gaza. And we got in return much more terror, much more war. I don't want to go into the operation dead and that and the Iron Dome. I think that some of you know what I'm talking about. Once again, the principles need to be clearly understood. So Gaza is a problem to Egypt and now to Israel. And that's why the two countries are cooperating because Hamas in Gaza is an issue. So we pulled out, as we said, and they had elections. And guess what happened? The bad guys won. All right? Hamas won the elections. The PLO, that were the leaders are just a minute now, we do not accept the results of the elections. We refuse to surrender the weapons or the power which led to a civil war. So the Palestinians, some will say there was no such thing, some will say there is such thing, that's not the question now, want to have world recognition that they are a nation, when they are divided into two entities fighting each other, but they want the world to recognize them as one nation. And the world is going to, by the way, the UN started already. Does it going to add stability to the Middle East or going to add confusion and chaos? What say you? By the way, they demand that Israel will recognize Palestine as the homeland for the Palestinian people. And you know what we said? Of course we will. But in return, you need to recognize Israel as the homeland of the Jewish people. They cannot do that. They will never, ever do that. Let me tell you what, if one Arab leader, one, 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 will be courageous enough to say, I believe that the Jews deserve a land in Israel, 95 of the problem is over. We can negotiate now how much land, be creative about exchanging populations, territories, doable. One leader to say a simple sentence, the Jews have a right for a state, they cannot say that. If you listen to statements of Mahmoud Abbas, president, he says in the future of Palestine, he will not permit a single Jew to live in his country. Even Adolf Hitler didn't say that. This is the most racist comment 
that anybody can make. And the world seems to be okay with it. Jew-free? Are we back to Auschwitz? So many Arabs live in Israel, and they are part of our country, our nation. And he says it all the time. In my country, not a single Jew really. There are two states in the world that by their constitution, you cannot be Jewish. Jordan, Saudi Arabia. That's it. And maybe the Palestinian autonomy. What about these two countries? That's the very cradle of Islam. That's where the faith was born. The very existence of Jews is defiling the Muslim holy territory. Do you understand that? We asked permission once in Saudi Arabia to fly over the airspace. And the answer was, well, you know, the very existence of Jews 30,000 feet above will defile Mecca and Medina. What on earth are we going to negotiate about? Well, the king is dead, so maybe the new king will be a little more liberal. 88 years old, suffers from dementia, by the way. The new one. Yeah, well, in Saudi, it's a dynasty, all right? It just goes from one to the other, the brother, by the way. And so they don't really care about mental condition, etc. So that's a case of the territories, and that's a case of Hamas. And I do want to bring it to some kind of a conclusion because we can't really go on and on and on. And let me just uh, further on. Thank you. All right. If you just, again, Israel is accused all the time for mistreating the Palestinians and there is starvation in Gaza and all those, I have to say, nonsense. And then you read this. Reporters came to Gaza from Egypt and that was their report. So how come the world still thinks and speak such terms that Israel is the conquering power, and we are oppressing the poor Palestinians, etc. The last operation, Operation Defensive Edge, I think was the name in, in English, I'm not even sure how to translate that, was something that maybe will change the course of events in the area. You all heard about the Iron Dome, you know what the Iron Dome is, at least some of you. It's a weapon system that was developed in Israel, American money by the way, Israeli technology, the only weapon system in the world, all right, that can basically intercept rockets. There are nine batteries, and they were deployed in different parts of the country. 94% success. 94% of success. Because the radar can, in one second after the rocket is launched, one second, can tell you exactly where the rocket is going to fall. If it's going to fall in an inhabited area, we'll send a rocket to intercept it. If it's going to fall out in the open, we won't even bother. 94% success. The whole world was kind of cheering. What a great accomplishment. There's a problem. The problem is that Israel is getting used now to a defensive mindset. That's new to us. We were very good in taking the war into enemy's territory and bringing it to an end as fast as possible. That is now changing. Because we don't need to be in a hurry. We have a system. We don't have any casualties. The public is not pressuring the government. We can take it easy. Once again, it sounds like a great position to be at. We are sitting in a Tel Aviv coffee shop, true story, having coffee. The siren goes off. You go into the bomb shelter. Every place has bomb shelter. You hear the boom. You go outside to take a picture quickly to see this cloud of... And you go to finish your coffee because it's still hot. It's a crazy situation to be at. Just sitting there, when you see how those things are kind of above your head. The Iron Dome, as sophisticated as it is, in a way, it's a bad sign. 
Because the mindset of the people now is getting more defensive. We can protect ourselves and therefore we can choose our retaliation very carefully. Once again, it's not what you do. It's how the other side understands it. And if Israel is mobilizing its reserves and hesitates to go into Gaza and they keep firing at Israel, hundreds of rockets, and we still hesitate, they won. Regardless what the statistics are saying. Do you understand that? And therefore, the way that Israel is perceived by the other countries in the area is lack of determination, hesitation, confusion. It's a bad position to be in. So we maybe have the electronical superiority, no doubt. Technology, excellent technology. But the mindset, I hesitate to say some of the spirit, is also changing. The last time that I was called, and I'm retired as I said earlier, 2006, 70,000 reservists were called. The case of Lebanon. And we were like a bunch of idiots waiting for three weeks for the order to come. Usually the order came a few hours later. And we did not understand what's wrong with the leaders. Well, you know, we want to save human lives. And the families are kind of pressuring and everybody serves in the army, so it's everybody's issue. On one hand side, you see the Middle East becoming more brutal, more militant. On the other side, Israel demonstrates a lot of hesitation. I'm not saying it's going to stay for too long, but right now, that's how we are perceived by the others. A country that lost the spirit, we rely on technology, we are scared, we try to save human lives as much as we can. I'm sorry to say that. When there's a job to be done, you do not consider human lives. To the long term, you're losing more if you hesitate than if you go straight in and you take it as fast as possible out. That's what we used to do with great success. That is changing. So look at this interesting balance. On one hand side, things are getting worse and worse around us and we are not demonstrating the same determination as we are so good at and known for around the world. Bottom line, we know how the book ends. And God is good. And I'm telling you that in my country, although Israel is a secular state, so to speak, and I don't want to go into that, we all know why we are there. We are there because we are privileged that in my generation, God chose to gather his people back to their home. And I'm telling you, this is huge. Eighty generations of Jews back cannot say that they lived as free people in a free country. We do believe that that's according to God's plan. If you look at the map of the Middle East and you see the stuffed neighborhood, I'm telling you, if it wasn't God's plan, we cannot survive there. And therefore, there was a price to pay and we are willing and proud to pay the price. It wasn't easy to be Jewish around the world, not easy to be Israeli, but we are there because there is a cause that we believe in. So maybe it looks on the outside that we lost some of our determination. I'm telling you, more resilient, stronger, more prosperous, and waiting to see what will happen. We are strong enough to face whatever. I do hope it won't be our own battle. I hope it will be a joint battle with the USFA because both countries are sharing the same principles. We do live and we want to live by Judeo-Christian principles. Thank you.